As we have heard and know, as, we have been, as it has been brought before us here today, we know that on today's date in the year of 1517 that Germany was in great upheaval. A particular concern for many Germans was a certain building project that was taking place in the city of Rome. Pope Leo was building, at that time, the magnificent Basilica of St. Peter, and he was funding much of the project through the sale of indulgences. That's not a word that's in our daily vocabulary as Baptists, I wouldn't imagine, but what's an indulgence? An indulgence is the Roman church's cancellation of a sinner's liability to temporal suffering for sin. And the suffering that you need to do is good works. So let's illustrate. It might be a little simpler for us. A person sins. Not an unusual event, but technically speaking, that individual in the Roman system is to go to a priest and make confession. Through this sacrament of reconciliation, the priest absolves the individual of sin, and then the sinner gets up to leave. And the priest says, now wait a minute. We're not done yet. I need to assign to you some suffering. And that suffering is generally actually good works. But there's things you have to do. There's time you have to put in. There's rituals that you have to pursue because you need to suffer for what you've done wrong here so that you don't need to in purgatory. Now, God alone can take care of the eternal suffering of sin, but we can deal with the temporal, physical suffering of sin by me assigning to you certain tasks. And then you will be fully absolved of your sin. The catch in all of this is that since the Roman church sees itself as a dispensary of saving grace, the Pope can release some of that grace to the sinner, thereby canceling the sinner's need to pay off sin by performing religious works. Now the Pope can give away that grace or the Pope can sell it. And Pope Leo kind of had an interest in the latter more than the former. By selling this indulgence, by selling this cancellation of punishment for sin, he was sending his representatives from one German town to another who were taking the money from German people, taking the proceeds then back to Rome, and thereby Leo's building his building. Well, a young professor at the University of Wittenberg named Martin Luther was not happy with this scheme, as was true of many thinking Germans. There were many who saw the Pope's representatives coming into town and could not stand it. They were so excited with the possibility of being delivered from this heavy weight of sin, they thought. But others realized what the Pope was doing, and in fact, Luther had been in Rome and had seen it. And so Luther, as we mentioned earlier today, posted a debate notice on the door of the castle church. It kind of acted like a bulletin board. That castle church at Wittenberg on this date, today's date, in 1517. He knew that the next day the church would be filled with uh, worshipers for All Saints Day, and so he hoped to get some attention. Now, he's a faithful Roman Catholic priest. He believes in indulgences and quite clearly states that there in his theses. But he is not happy with the way that the Pope is using these indulgences, and he is not happy with the Pope's understanding 
of these indulgences. And that's the key. It's how the Pope saw them. This young monk was slowly realizing through his studies of the Bible, particularly the New Testament, and perhaps particularly to come the book of Romans itself, he was coming to understand that justification is not gained by a series of good works, but rather by faith in God. A faith that works, but not a faith of works. So Luther's 95 Thesis contained the seeds of an evangelical theology of a salvation by grace through faith in Christ, and it precipitated what we know today as the Protestant Revolution. Within two years, Luther's own conversion would come. But after posting those 95 Theses along with him, Luther continues to preach and he continues to teach the biblical truth that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This was in opposition to the Roman church's belief that salvation is imparted by the church to people who do good works. Where's Luther coming from? We've read it there in Romans chapter 3. There is a righteousness from God apart from works to which the law and the prophets testify. He was coming to believe that, and he was coming to believe in this early stage in his journey that the way that the Pope and the Roman Church understood indulgences was an indication that they did not understand justification by faith as a gift from God. Well, the process continues. As I mentioned, I think it's actually after the posting of the 95 Theses that Luther comes to saving faith in Christ. Finally, in the spring of 1521, he is summoned to stand before Emperor Charles V and a council of German princes and territorial rulers, and he is called to give account of his beliefs. It was a summons to death, and everyone knew it, Luther included. 4 p.m., April 17th, Luther stood in the simple garb of a Roman monk before the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, bedecked in all of his regal splendor. Luther's books were placed on a table, and he was asked, Are these your writings, and do you wish to retract them, or do you adhere to them and continue to assert them? Luther acknowledged that the books were his, and he knew that if he did not renounce his beliefs, a death sentence would be placed on his head. You agree with me? That's scary. See something that you've written there sitting on a table, and you know that if you say, I believe what I wrote, someone's going to say you die. That's frightening. But Martin Luther feared something even more than death. A fear we detect in his response to the Inquisitor. And I'd like you to listen to it carefully. He said this, This touches God in his word. This affects the salvation of souls. Of this, Christ said, He who denies me before men, I will deny before the Father. I beg you, give me time to think it over. 24 hours later, Martin Luther stood before the same council, which held his life in their hands. Luther was perspiring. He'd been battered around by an angry crowd for an hour while the council deliberated. But now the moment of truth had arrived and Luther stood before the council, having prayed and having thought, and he said this, 
unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. I want to narrow in on a phrase there. He said, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. What does he mean? In the context, in the setting, what does he mean to go against conscience? I think he's referring, perhaps, to the words that he spoke the very night before, the words of Jesus, who said, He who denies me before men, him will I deny before the Father. If your conscience tells you that you're going to deny the Father, that's a greater fear than losing your life. And so it is not right, and it is not safe. Safe, Martin? What's not safe is saying that you're going to stick with these words. It's not safe to deny conscience and to deny Christ. It is less safe to fall under the condemnation of God by denying the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ. In that moment, Luther chose, in that moment, Luther chose to fear God more than man. That was the choice. And Christian, that is not an unusual decision for the followers of Jesus Christ. And Jesus knew that. And so in the last months of his ministry on earth, Jesus labored to prepare his disciples to handle opposition. In fact, to choose the fear of God over the fear of man and to die for it. That's normal Christian living. In a few months, Jesus' corpse will be hanging on a cross. And these 12 men that he is discipling and nurturing are going to need to look into the face of those who executed Jesus and to give defense for their faith. There's only one way that's possible, and it is if you fear God more than man. Bottom line. Come on, Jesus. What's this talk Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, I mean, Jesus, look at this. Do you see it? You are wildly popular. The crowds are so large that people are trampling on one another to get near Jesus. He's talking these very hard words about standing up for the truth. The disciples could taste the power. They could taste the influence as a team. Remember chapter 11, verse 37, as we looked at it last week. Jesus starts there, as you go down through, from 37 down through 54, he says some very hard words to the Pharisees. And now he's going to talk to the disciples and says essentially, my hard words were for the Pharisees. 
These people are separated from God. They are killing the prophets that come to him. They think they're religious. Everyone respects them. They're hypocrites. That's a word to these Pharisees. But listen, there's a lesson in it for us who are the followers of Christ. And so Jesus says to his disciples, there's a lesson in this for you. The crowds are coming. The popularity is is off the charts. But the middle of verse 1 Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And this section, I think, flies under the banner, if I could put it this way, fear God, he knows everything about you. Be on your guard, says Jesus. I'll develop this thought as Jesus does here in verses 2 and 3. But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Jesus exposes the service of the Pharisees as religion with ulterior motives. And so he says, listen to me. The crowds are increasing. We're a hot commodity in Israel right now. Do not allow the hypocrisy of the Pharisees to set in. They are powerful. They are popular. But do not forget their claim to love and honor God is not genuine. They are proud. They are self-serving. Don't let them draw you in. Power can corrupt. Don't give in to hypocrisy. Well, that puts the disciples in a sort of strange place because these Pharisees are very powerful people. And what is going to happen if we reject them? What is going to happen if we incur their wrath? What is going to happen, Jesus, if you keep saying things like you've just said to them? and torching them for their hypocrisy, 1137 and following. Jesus says this, more than you should fear the wrath of these powerful leaders, I want you to fear this, verse 2. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. That is a poetic way of saying, never forget that God knows everything. You might think you can cut corners and broker shady deals in private conversations. You might think you can live a double life, but that is a lie. God knows every secret. And in the end, every secret will be brought to light. Fear that. That's a bold word. It's a word we need to set up and consider. Outwardly, I think as a church, we are largely a religious and upstanding bunch of people. Are we not? I wonder, though, about the private and the inward, and if we should not take a look in light of Jesus' words at that today. What are you like in the dark? What do you say and what do you do in the inner rooms of our homes, in the inner rooms of your mind? Are there compromising secrets in your life? Do you enjoy a relationship with someone you would be embarrassed to have find out that you are here today? That's hypocrisy. And it's going to be uncovered. We need to beware 
Hypocrisy, hypocrisy is a short-sighted policy, writes Leon Morris. The art of being a hypocrite depends on the ability to keep some things concealed. Here's Jesus' promise. Nothing will remain concealed. Why do we conceal sin from others? What is the real reason for it? The reason is clear and obvious. By keeping it hidden from others, well, we fear that they're going to find out. So the real issue is that we fear man more than we fear God. We fear the scrutiny and the judgment of man, so we play act, all the while failing to fear the scrutiny and the judgment of God who will expose our hypocrisy. We're more concerned that people not see us than we are to know that God will. Whom do you fear most? God or man? Your private life is a strong indicator. Cannot help but remember the words here of Charles Spurgeon, great English preacher. There were many people who would love to bring him down and sought to do so, and some were concocting some ideas about him and saying that they were going to expose him as a fraud and a hypocrite and destroy his life and ministry. And Spurgeon's words were to them, write all that you know about me across the sky. What a great word. Not just a great word, how great it would be to have a life that backs it up. Write what you know about me across the sky. There's nothing hidden. So it kind of goes both ways, doesn't it? Jesus says, watch it. Everything you say in the inner room will be revealed. Everything will be spoken from the housetops. It's a figurative way of saying, remember, God sees and knows. But that's also an encouragement for those of a genuine life. Because the things that we do that no one sees, God sees. This is the right kind of fear. Fear the one who knows everything. Verses 4 through 7, I think we see this idea. Fear God, he can throw you into hell. Verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid. The Greek word fear. Do not fear of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Now, a preacher who skips these verses when preaching through Luke is not being a faithful preacher. In fact, there might be some here among us today who when I made that statement, he can throw you into hell, say, oh, now, that's not how the Bible speaks. Some Baptist that's off all cockeyed again saying these outdated, fearful things. I've just quoted Jesus. And I think to skip what Jesus says here is not playing fair with the text. Nor do I think it is fair to somehow soften and smooth his words out so that they please polite ears. That's not faithful to what Jesus said and to the Spirit of Christ. I don't think Jesus meant to be soft here. What did he say? I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after killing the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. One of the problems, one of the reasons that we don't have capacities to hear such hard words is we don't fear God. And perhaps we don't think it's all really real. 
And some might say to Jesus, man, just chill out here. Isn't that a little intense? Remember who he's talking to? The vast majority of these 12 men would be martyred. They're going to be killed for following Jesus. And Jesus knows there is only one way that we'll be able to stand the persecution. And what is it? They need to fear God more than they fear man. And they should, because the truth is, man can touch your body, but God has your soul, and he can throw it into hell. So here's a simple quiz. Fact, people can destroy your body. It's happening all the time. Happened this week to Christians who lost their life for Christ. People can destroy your body. Fact number two, God can destroy your body and then throw your eternal soul into hell. Quiz question, which of those two are you going to fear more? Very simple. Now, should we read this to understand that God is, Jesus is some kind of hard-nosed teacher about a hard-nosed ruler God who delights to flick people off into hell? Is that what he's saying, verse 6? I think answers that. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Sparrows were the cheapest food sold at the open market. Yet as insignificant as they are, God watches over each one of those sparrows. He knows what happens to them. You lose a hair off your pate and God knows about it. The point is that God, the God who can throw us into hell is also the God who knows us intimately and watches over us and cares about everything that is happening in our life. Our fear, then, is not one of quaking intimidation that God might flick us into the fires of hell. It is rather the kind of fear that is awed and that reverences God for his watch care and his compassion for those that are rightly related to him. So, do not let anyone intimidate you from following me, says Jesus. All they can do is kill you. That's it. Remember that I will meet you in eternity. And remember that I'm watching over you. Fear me, not them. Fear God. He can throw you into hell. But he watches over you. Verse 8 and following, we have this banner. Fear God. Jesus is going to speak about you in heaven the way you speak about him on earth. Jesus is going to speak about you in heaven the way you speak about him on earth. Verse 8. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. To acknowledge here in verse 8, or, or the Greek confess, is a Semitic form of speech meaning to proclaim truth about someone or something. Those who proclaim the truth about Christ, the Son of Man, will confess before the angels of God, the witnesses of heaven. Jesus will identify in heaven with those who acknowledge him on earth. By contrast, those who deny Christ on earth will be denied in heaven. And so the issue is, are you going to be intimidated by the world that rejects Christ, or are you going to be faithful to Jesus? 
I think the issue here is not merely a time of denial or confession, but rather a way of life. I think Jesus is essentially saying, it is going to get rough here, gentlemen. There are going to be all kinds of situations in the near future where it will be safer to deny me. Don't let that fear override the fact that as you speak for me here, I will speak for you in heaven. Verse 10, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What does that mean? Well, Jesus knows people are born sinners. We are not going to naturally love Jesus simply by being human. And so people are going to see Jesus, and certainly in this context in particular, they're going to see his life and watch his ministry. And some of them are going to say, I don't think he's really anything special. I don't know that I really follow this Jesus rabbi. I have to think a little bit more about it. Are you a follower of Jesus? No, not, no, not me. I know who he is. I've heard his teachings, but no, I'm not a follower of Jesus. Jesus is saying that can be forgiven. In time, as people see him physically and hear him audibly, there may be a period of rejection. No one believes in Christ immediately. That can be forgiven. But there's something further and deeper the middle of verse 10, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What is blasphemy of the Spirit? Let me assure you, to blaspheme the Spirit is not a slip of the tongue. I remember a few times as a younger boy being scared to death as I was tempted with saying those words. I blaspheme the Spirit of God and thinking that's all that's between me and never being forgiven. Now, that's not really the case. It's not a, 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 just a word that we speak in a weak moment. Certainly, that's not a good thing to do. But that's not the idea of blaspheming the Spirit. Matthew and Mark connect this statement to the incident that we find in this immediate context, chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. What happens there? Jesus heals this man, and people say he's working with Satan. He's in league with Satan. Matthew and Mark both bring this idea out here that those who blaspheme the Spirit will never be forgiven. And putting that together, and it fits the context, the broader context of Luke as well, the blasphemy of the Spirit seems to be a settled rejection of the Spirit's testimony concerning who Jesus is, the Savior from sin. One commentator says it is conscious persistent, wicked rejection of the Spirit's witness. It is a setting of the mind against the Spirit of God. Another commentator, a persistent and decisive rejection of the Spirit's message and work concerning Jesus. And this is the, I think, consensus among those who try to discern what Jesus meant here. This is saying, I, don't, I will not listen to God's witness to who Jesus is. If you persistently reject the witness of Christ, there is no forgiveness of sin. Where does our righteousness come from? Romans chapter 3. It is a gift from God through, through faith in Jesus Christ. You reject that message. You persist in saying Jesus is not the Savior. There's no forgiveness for that.
And I wonder where we stand as God's people in light of that truth. When Jesus says, those who confess me before men, I will confess before the angels of God. Do we cower and hide our allegiance to Christ? Are we an embarrassed people? Young people, those of you who are at school, particularly those that are in schools where, that, where Christ is not honored, be that Christian or not, it can, be one, it can be both, depending on the situation, where Christ is not honored, you feel that, don't you? The embarrassment, the challenge of needing to speak for him and stand up for him. Don't fear peers in those situations. Fear God. You may not be in a school where that's the case and where that's the challenge that you face in your faith. You'll find it. There'll be places where there are kids who intimidate you and you want to fear them more than God. Remember who God is and stand for Jesus. It's not just for kids, is it, adults? It's also that guy at work. That lady next door is a neighbor who doesn't have any time for Christ. It's the pressure of laughing about the things that God doesn't laugh about and prioritizing the things that God despises and identifying with the people who aren't set in a picture of popularity. Do we speak for Christ? Do we stand for Him? Do we confess His name before others? Let's fear God, remembering that what I say about Jesus on earth is what He will say about me in heaven. All the hypocrisy will be gone. All the hiding will be gone. And the truth will be told. Where do we stand? Does your fear of what people might think keep you from obeying God in some area of your life? Fear God. Once again, we have to ask here, is God just a harsh father who tells us to buck up and face the firing squad without fear and remember there's going to be a report card in heaven and everything that you said, you've got to remember, I'm going to say about you, and that's the end of the topic. That's not the end of the topic. Remember the sparrows? Remember the hairs on your head? Same idea here in verse 11. When you are brought before synagogues and rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourself or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. You're going to come before whom? They're going to come before whom? Synagogues, rulers, authorities. These individuals are going to be stood up in front of councils. And people are going to be asking them to deny their faith. When you're in that spot, says Jesus, I'll be there. I'll be there with you. Don't worry about preparing this long speech. I'll be there. Don't try to get your defense all up and ready. 
I'll have you say what you're supposed to say. What you need to do is fear me and not them, and the Spirit of God will strengthen you to say what is right. By the way, this has got nothing to do with preparing sermons, all right? There's some preachers who've taken this and said, yeah, see, I just get up and speak, and the Spirit speaks through me. And as somebody wisely noted in my reading this week, yeah, and they tend to say those things to one church after another, <laughs> because there's really not a whole lot there when we just talk off the top of our heads. It's no point, teachers who teach young people here in our church or parents at home, to not study as we teach and preach the Word of God. That's not the context. The context is you're being arrested and you're being hauled in front of some people. Don't spend your time worrying about exactly the right words to say. Realize that I will be with you. In that moment, in a unique way. So that what you speak before that council I'll be there, and I'll meet you in heaven. Don't fear, man. Fear God. He knows everything. Fear God. He has the power to cast you into hell. Fear God. Jesus is going to speak about you in heaven what you speak about him on earth. Fear God. And when you do, you can trust in his care. He knows where you're at. He knows what you suffer. You can trust in his presence. He will witness for you as you stand before others. What could happen with our young people and our adults here in this church as we would really believe that truth? Not, ob not being obnoxious. In fact, let's remember, we're witnesses for Jesus. He wants us to witness winsomely about him, just like you would want someone to witness winsomely about you. The call is not to be obnoxious and to simply get our point in every time that we can and to interrupt people and to always turn everything into a statement about Jesus that makes no sense to anybody. None of that's got anything to do with this. But it does have to do with do we speak for Christ out of courage, because we fear him more than man. That's the issue. When the body of the great Scottish reformer John Knox was laid to rest, it's reported that someone said he feared man so little because he feared God so much. And living in such a world, we must be prepared to confess him and to honor him even when it hurts. We do not... We do not need to be strong people. What we need to do is to fear God and know that he's strong. That's all. And my tears come from a picture I can't get out of my mind. of a short, little Chinese woman reported just recently. Picture of her corpse. She was, back this summer, handing out Bibles in the open market in China and was hauled into the authorities and by the next day she was dead. Dying of, quote, 
sudden disease. The picture of her corpse shows half of her hair gone. And her relatives have signed affidavits about the marks all over her body. What business does a short little Chinese woman have standing up to authorities and saying, I will not renounce Jesus. Who knows what, what went on in that police station? Who knows? You know who knows? Jesus knows. And I believe that he was there and spoke a word to that woman. Don't fear them. Fear me. And I'll meet you in heaven. I don't believe that's going to happen to any of us tonight to be arrested for our position in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we not be inspired by those who face such trials through history and in the current day? And should we not then join hands with them under the care and the compassion of our Savior and say, I will fear God more than I fear man. May that inspire and drive us and encourage us to open our mouths for the Lord Jesus Christ this week and to identify with him. That gives me weak knees sometimes. I need your prayers. We need one another's prayers to stand for Christ and to witness his truth in a world that is bent against him. But we do so filled with the joy of knowing how this is going to end. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we thank you for the words of Martin Luther. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. May we let goods and kindred go, and this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth 
abide still. Your kingdom, our Savior, is forever. We bow with thanks of heart how weak and frail our hearts are. But I trust how filled now with gratitude when we consider those who have given their life for Christ. And I pray, dear Father, according to your mercy and grace, that you will help us to be bold for Christ in a way that is honorable to his name. May we not fear man, but fear God in the right reverential sense. May this be our testimony as a church. Lord, help us to blow away the things, the cobwebs in our hearts and homes, the things that need to be removed. And may we follow your word and your will. May we be authentic and know who you are. God, I pray for anyone that knows you not as Savior, and I ask that you'll draw them to you as the Savior from the wrath that is your justice upon sin. Draw to saving faith those that need to fear not man, but the one who can throw body and soul into hell. God, may they know that he loves and comforts and cares. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.